Hello and welcome to what is now the annual Dark History's Christmas Campfire episode. This is the third, which is pretty cool. And it's definitely going to be the longest. And that's all thanks to you guys for sending in your awesome stories. And I thought today, before I get to the reader stories, we'd open with a short story by M.R. James, who really was kind of the master of this, or, or one of the masters. And he wrote these short stories, many of them, precisely for this reason. He would write short stories at school when he was boarding at Cambridge and uh, tell his friends them at Christmas over the candlelight. And then he obviously went on later to publish them in books. This one was published in 1911 in a compendium of his ghost stories called More Ghost Stories of Antiquary. And fittingly, I guess, it's called A School Story. So yeah, I thought we'd open with this, and then afterwards we'll get into the reader's stories. So let's pretty much just crack on, because we've got plenty of stories. Two men in a smoking room were talking of their private school days. At our school, said A, we had a ghost footmark on the staircase. What was it like? Oh, you know, very unconvincing. Just the shape of a shoe with a square toe, if I remember right. The staircase was a stone one. I never heard any story about the thing. That seems odd when you come to think of it. Why didn't someone invent one, I wonder? You never can tell with little boys. They had a mythology of their own. There's a subject for you, by the way. The folklore of private schools. Yes, the crop is rather scanty, though. I imagine if you were to investigate the cycle of ghost stories, for instance, which the boys at private schools tell each other, they would all turn out to be highly compressed versions of stories out of books. Nowadays, the Strand and Pearsons and so on would be extensively drawn upon. No doubt. They were born or thought of in my time. Let's see. I wonder if I can remember the staple ones that I was told. First, there was the house with a room in which a series of people insisted on passing a night and each of them in the morning was found kneeling in a corner and had just time to say, I've seen it, and died. Wasn't that the house in Berkeley Square? I dare say it was. Then there was the man who heard the noise in the passage at night, opened his door and saw someone crawling towards him on all fours with his eye hanging out on his cheek. There was besides, let me think. Yes, the room where a man was found dead in bed with a horseshoe mark on his forehead and the floor under the bed was coloured with marks of horseshoes also. I don't know why. Also, there was the lady who, on locking her bedroom door in a strange house, heard a thin voice among the bed curtains say, Now we're shut in for the night. None of those had any explanation or sequel. I wonder if they go on still, those stories. Oh, likely enough. With additions from the magazines, as I said, you never heard, did you, of a real ghost at a private school? I thought not. Nobody has that ever I came across. From the way in which you said that, I gather that you have. I really don't know, but this is what was in my mind. It happened at my private school 30 odd years ago, and I haven't any explanation of it. The school, I mean, was near London. It was established in a large and fairly old house, a great white building with a very fine grounds about it. There were large cedars in the garden, as there are in so many of the older gardens in the Thames Valley, and the ancient elms in the three or four fields which we used for our games. I think probably it was quite an attractive place, but boys seldom allow their schools to possess any tolerable features. 
I came to the school in September, soon after the year 1870, and among the boys who arrived on the same day was one whom I took to, a Highland boy, whom I'll call McClod. I needn't spend time in describing him. The main thing is that I got to know him very well. He was not an exceptional boy in any way, not particularly good at books or games, but he suited me. The school was a large one. There must have been from 120 to 130 boys there as a rule, and so a considerable staff of masters was required, and there were rather frequent changes among them. One term, perhaps it was my third or fourth, a new master made his appearance. His name was Samson. He was a tallish, stoutish, pale, black-bearded man. I think we liked him. He had travelled a good deal and had stories which amused us on our school walks, so there was some competition among us to get within earshot of him. I remember too, dear me, I haven't hardly thought of it since then, that he had a charm on his watch chain that attracted my attention one day, and he let me examine it. It was, I now suppose, a gold Byzantine coin. There was an effigy of some absurd emperor on one side. The other side had been worn practically smooth, and he had cut on it, rather barbarously, his own initials, GWS, and a date, 24th July, 1865. Yes, I can see it now. He told me he had picked it up in Constantinople. It was about the size of a florin, perhaps rather smaller. Well, the first odd thing that happened was this. Samson was doing Latin grammar with us. One of his favourite methods, perhaps as a rather good one, was to make us construct sentences out of our own heads to illustrate the rules he was trying to make us learn. Of course, that is the thing which gives a silly boy a chance of being impertinent. There are lots of school stories in which that happens, or anyhow there might be. But Samson was too good a disciplinarian for us to think of trying that on with him. Now, on this occasion... He was telling us how to express remembering in Latin, and he ordered us each to make a sentence, bringing in the verb memini, I remember. Well, most of us made up some ordinary sentence, such as, I remember my father, or he remembers his book, or, or something equally uninteresting, and I dare say a good many put down memini librum meum, and so forth, but the boy I mentioned, McLeod, was evidently thinking of something more elaborate than that. The rest of us wanted to have our sentences passed and get on to something else, so some kicked him under his desk, and I, who was next to him, poked him and whispered to him to look sharp, but he didn't seem to attend. I looked at his paper and saw he had put down nothing at all, so I jogged him again harder than before and upbraided him sharply for keeping us all waiting. That did have some effect. He started and seemed to wake up, and then very quickly he scribbled out a couple of lines on his paper and showed it up with the rest. As it was the last, or nearly the last, to come in, and as Samson had a good deal to say to the boys who had written Memeniscus Patrimio and the rest of it, it turned out that the clock struck twelve before he had got to McLeod, and McLeod had to wait afterwards to have his sentence corrected. There was nothing much going on outside when I got out, so I waited for him to come. He came very slowly when he did arrive, and I guessed there had been some sort of trouble. Well, I said, what did you get? Oh... I don't know, said McLeod. Nothing much. I think Samson's rather sick with me. Why? Did you show him up some rot? No fear, he said. It was all right as far as I could see. It was like this. Memento, that's right enough for remember. And it takes a genitive. Memento pute inter quarter taxos. What silly rot, I said. 
What made you shove that down? What does it mean? That's the funny part, said McLeod. I'm not quite sure what it does mean. All I know is, it just came into my head and I corked it down. I know what I think it means, because just before I wrote it down, I had a sort of picture of it in my head. I believe it means, remember the well among the four. What are those dark sort of trees that have red berries on them? Mountain ashes, I suppose you mean. I've never heard of them, said McLeod. No, I'll tell you. Use. Well, and what did Samson say? Why, he was jolly odd about it. When he read it, he got up and went to the mantelpiece and stopped quite a long time without saying anything at his back to me. And then he said, without turning around, and rather quiet, What do you suppose that means? I told him what I thought. I know I couldn't remember the name of the silly tree. And then he wanted to know why I put it down. And I had to say something or other. And after that, he left off talking about it and asked me how long I'd been here and where my people lived and things like that. And then I came away. But he wasn't looking a bit well. I don't remember any more that was said by either of us about this. Next day, McLeod took to his bed with a chill or something of the kind. And it was a week or more before he was in school again. And as much as a month went by without anything happening that was noticeable, whether or not Mr. Sampson was really startled, as McLeod had thought, he didn't show it. I am pretty sure, of course, now, that there was something very curious in his past history, but I'm not going to pretend that we boys were sharp enough to guess any such thing. There was one other incident of the same kind as the last which I told you. Several times since that day, we had had to make up examples in school to illustrate different rules, but there had never been any row except when we did them wrong. At last there came a day when we were going through those dismal things which people call conditional sentences, and we were told to make a conditional sentence expressing a future consequence. We did it, right or wrong, and showed up our bits of paper, and Samson began looking through them. All at once he got up, made an odd sort of noise in his throat, and rushed out by a door that was just by his desk. We sat there for a minute or two, and then, I suppose it was incorrect, but we went up and I, one or two others, to look at the papers on his desk. Of course, I thought someone must have put down some nonsense or other, and Samson had gone off to report him. All the same, I noticed that he hadn't taken any of the papers with him when he ran out. Well, the top paper on the desk was written in red ink, which no one used, and it wasn't in anyone's hand who was in the class. They all looked at it, McLeod and all, and took their dying oaths that it wasn't theirs. Then I thought of counting the bits of paper, and of this I made quite certain that there were 17 bits of paper on the desk and 16 boys in the form. But I bagged the extra paper and kept it, and I believe I have it now. And now you'll want to know what was written on it. It was simple enough, and harmless enough, I should have said. Seed to non veneris ad me, ego venium ad te. Which means, I suppose, if you don't come to me, I'll come to you. Could you show me the paper? Interrupted the listener. Yeah, yeah, I could. But there's another odd thing about it. That same afternoon, I took it out of my locker. I know for certain it was the same bit, for I made a finger mark on it, and no single trace of writing of any kind was there on it. I kept it, as I said, and since that time, I have tried various experiments to see whether sympathetic ink had been used, but absolutely without result. So much for that. After about half an hour, Samson looked in again, said he had felt very unwell, and told us we might go. 
He came rather gingerly to his desk and gave just one look at the uppermost paper, and I suppose he thought he must have been dreaming. Anyhow, he asked no questions. That day was a half holiday, and next day Samson was in school again, much as usual. That night, the third and last incident in my story happened. We, McLeod and I, we slept in a dormitory at right angles to the main building. Samson slept in the main building on the first floor. There was a very bright full moon. At an hour, which I can't tell exactly, but sometime between one and two, I was woken up by somebody shaking me. It was McLeod, and a nice state of mind he seemed to be in. Come, he said, come. There's a burglar getting in through Samson's window. As soon as I could speak, I said, Well, why not call out and wake everybody up? No, no, he said. I'm not sure who it is. Don't make a row. Come and look. Naturally, I came and looked, and naturally there was no one there. I was cross enough and should have called McLeod plenty of names, only I couldn't tell why. It seemed to me that there was something wrong something that made me very glad that I wasn't alone to face it. We were still at the window looking out, and as soon as I could, I asked him what he had heard or seen. I didn't hear anything at all, he said, but about five minutes before I woke you, I found myself looking out of this window here, and there was a man sitting or kneeling on Samson's windowsill and looking in, and I thought he was beckoning. What sort of man? McLeod wriggled. I don't know, he said. I can tell you one thing, he was beastly thin, and he looked as if he was wet all over, and, he said, looking around, whispering as if he hardly liked to hear himself, I'm not at all sure that he was alive. We went on talking in whispers for some time longer, and eventually crept back to bed. No one else in the room woke or stirred the whole time. I believe we did sleep a bit afterwards, but we were very cheap next day. And next day... Mr. Sampson was gone. Not to be found, and I believe no trace of him was ever to come to light since. In thinking it over, one of the oddest things about it all that seemed to me to be the fact that neither McClod nor I ever mentioned what we had seen to any third person whatever. Of course, no questions were asked on the subject, and if they had been, I'm inclined to believe that we could not have made any answer. We seemed unable to speak about it. And that, It's my story, said the narrator. The only approach to a ghost story connected with a school that I know, but still, I think an approach to such a thing. A sequel to this may perhaps be reckoned highly conventional, but a sequel there is, and so it must be produced. There had been more than one listener to the story, and in the latter part of the same year, or of the next, one such listener was staying at a country house in Ireland. One evening, his host was turning over a drawer full of odds and ends in the smoking room, and he suddenly put his hand upon a little box. Now, he said, you know about old things, tell me what this is. My friend opened the little box, and found in it a thin gold chain with an object attached to it. He glanced at the object, and then took off his spectacles to examine it more narrowly. What's the history of this? he asked. Odd enough, was the answer. You know the youth ticket in the shrubbery? Well, a year or two back we were clearing out the old well that used to be in the clearing here. What do you suppose we found? Is it possible that you found a body, said the visitor, with an odd feeling of nervousness? We did that. But what's more, in every sense of the word, we found two. 
Good heavens. Two? Was there anything to show how they got there? Was this thing found with them? It was. Amongst the rags of the clothes that were on the one of the bodies. A bad business, whatever the story of it may have been. One body had the arms tight around the other. They must have been there 30 years or more. Long enough before we came to this place. You may judge we filled the well up fast enough. Do you make anything of what's caught on that gold coin you have there? I think I can, said my friend, holding it to the light. And he read it without much difficulty. It seems to be GWS, 24th of July, 1865. So that was M.R. James, who wrote many a ghost story. Many that are actually, I think, a lot better than that one, but that... They were they're all quite long, so I obviously wanted to start with something short. I didn't want to take away from, you know, the uh, kind of over, make it too long and overbearing because we got, say, all the great listener stories to get to that, that are really the focus. But I did want to include one because I just thought it would be fitting considering he, you know, launched his whole literary career really purely based on telling ghost stories at Christmas. I really recommend, if you haven't read or listened to any of them, I really recommend them. You can get, um, there's, a, there's loads of them on Audible and you can probably get them on YouTube as well, things like that, I would have thought, because they're pretty, pretty famous and they're pretty old, a lot of them, so they're out of um, copyright and such. But yeah, they're, they're excellent. There's a lot of compendiums around. I, I think he's sort of up there with, you know, Poe and Lovecraft for kind of stories for me. But anyway, let's get on to the listener stories. First of all, I should say that thank you very much to everyone who sent me in stories. I'll be getting back to each and every one of you um, personally to say thank you. If you did send me an email with a story and I've included it and I haven't got back to you yet, it's purely because I was receiving them whilst I've been at work the last sort of month or so. And I was just kind of flagging them as um, unread and then putting them to one side so that I could, I knew I was going to finish work around about the 21st um, for Christmas. And I wanted to kind of sit down and actually focus and, and read through them and put this whole episode together then. So I, I will be getting back to you um, to say thank you personally. So um, yeah, if I haven't yet, I will do. But yeah, we had loads of submissions, which is amazing. The first one comes from Mark and it's titled it Boston, Massachusetts, 1966, The Voice from the Radio. The story I'm going to tell is true, as best I remember it. It's not a ghost story, and it's difficult to call it supernatural. You might say it seemed like a glitch in the Matrix, one of those things that can't happen but did. It took just a few seconds to occur, and it was rarely if ever discussed after it happened, but I've never forgotten it, and I'm confident that I'll be describing it as accurately as necessary since it was over so quickly. In the summer of 1966, I was 11 years old, and had just finished a sixth grade, or school year. We lived in Jamaica Plain, a residential district of Boston, Massachusetts, USA. It's a neighborhood of wood frame houses with narrow side yards. It was developed from farmland after a railroad line from Boston South to Providence, Rhode Island was built in the 1830s. For British listeners, think suburban London, perhaps. I had just started playing clarinet two years earlier at the local public school, conveniently located next to our house. The following year, I joined a marching band sponsored by my local Catholic church parish. We played concerts, marched in parades, and most importantly to us, entered competitions each summer. We practiced frequently throughout the year and were able to travel each summer on short, day-long trips from Montreal to Washington, D.C. 
1966, we were scheduled to compete with other bands at the Veterans of Foreign Wars annual convention located that year in New York City. It was the first time away from home without my parents for me and one of my first out-of-state trips. We were to travel from Boston to New York on buses and stay in a hotel, another first for me. The morning of our departure, my mother and I were in our kitchen at home, getting ready to leave for the church school and the buses. In the background, a man spoke on the radio. I don't remember whether he was a music DJ or perhaps was reading the news and weather reports. My mother and I were talking at the time and the radio voice provided little more than an ambient noise in the background. I remember that I was sitting at the kitchen table while my mother stood across the room in the sink talking to me. My memory becomes clear when, during our conversation, my mother stopped to ask me whether I'd pack my lunch for the bus trip. Before I could answer, the voice on the radio said, That's right, have you packed your lunch? In real time, it all happened in a moment, but there was a sequence to it. By the time the words from the radio sunk into my consciousness, the man's voice was back to typical radio speak, just as one would expect. And as I looked up at my mother, she was staring at me with a puzzled look on her face. I don't remember exactly, but one of us asked the other, Did you hear that? We agreed that yes, we had heard the man on the radio repeat her words, words that seemed totally out of place for his own monologue. I know we did discuss this curious happening soon afterwards, but it didn't become one of those family stories that got repeated through the years. Maybe it was because it was just the two of us, and maybe it just seemed so trivial in itself. I suspect that, absent of any kind of rational explanation for what we heard that day, we just couldn't make sense of it and let it pass. I think it was M.R. James who said that real ghost stories would be, to paraphrase, short and almost trivial, a momentary occurrence without any logic, plot or message. That's what happened to us, and no ghost honoured us with its presence. The closest I can get to making sense of it is, as above, the reference to the movie The Matrix, in which a deja vu scene represents something gone wrong with the way we see reality. And to M.R. James's real ghost stories, I too have no plot or denouement to offer. In a few seconds, something happened. It shouldn't have, but it did, and then it was over. And soon afterwards, I took my suitcase and my lunch and went off to the bus and to New York, and I suspect, though I can't swear to it, I told my friends about the weird thing that happened before I left home. Thanks very much, Mark. And it's incredible that Mark brought up M.R. James in that story, but I'd already decided to do M.R. James and sort of open this episode with an M.R. James story. I always seem to feel like when I do these episodes, that these weird kind of, I think they call it like singularities or where they're where. I mean, they're just coincidences, I suppose. But last year, I remember there was two or three stories from the exact same town in America, which is just bizarre. And this year, yeah, I I already, like, since I kind of thought, right, I'm going to do this episode, I thought I'm going to include an M.R. James one at the start. And then the very first email I got, or, or, you know, the very first story I put down, was Mark mentioning M.R. James, which is just weird. But aside from that, I really like it. It reminds me of the Twilight Zone. It, it really reminds me of something that I would have seen like on a Twilight Zone episode. I thought it was really, really cool. And, and it would have freaked me out for sure. In that, if, I, if that sort of situation was to happen, I wonder how much I would then find myself sort of doubting myself. Like, you know, did, did I hear that? And, and I can tell you a story, actually, that's sort of similar. And it, it all became clear later. But a little while ago, I was, I was using my laptop and I, I didn't know that the new Windows 10 did this thing um, where it pops up 
when you play like a computer game, it pops up a thing that, that says like, you know, you're playing a game where you're going to stop your notifications and such. And this like message come up on the screen saying you're playing a game. And it really freaked me out because I don't know at the time, I just, it almost felt like disassociation. I couldn't, you know, and then it had gone again. And I didn't know it was doing this. It really freaked me out. And I, I feel like it's that sort of same sort of thing where you almost get like a disassociation moment and you feel like, that's weird. Did it really happen? Am I hallucinating? Did I, did I hear that? Or, you know, did I see that? So yeah, anyway, I thought it was a great story. Um, so thanks very much for sending it in, Mark. So next up, we got a story from Karen Von Cripps, who wrote a nice email, which she says, she prefaces by saying that she's only ever told this to the very closest of friends and family. So thanks very much for sending it in. We're now going to widen that net and tell it to the whole world. <laughs> so thanks very much. I hope that's not too daunting a thought. I used to be married to a serving soldier of the 3rd Parachute Regiment, and we took up residence in my army quarter in Church Crookham following our wedding in 1985. I had served myself in the military prior, so I settled quickly into the life, and soon I was friends with many of the other wives and families, especially as I became the Avon lady for the estate. In May of the following year, I had given up selling Avon, and another wife, Fiona Saunders, had taken on the job. I knew Fiona only in passing, we had mutual friends, and would chat on the bus that took us to Aldershot, or when we met. The weekend of 10th and 11th of May, 1986, we had been to a wedding of a friend of my husband's in Oxfordshire, which we'd enjoyed very much. A bit too much, really, and on Sunday the 11th, we limped home, hung over and drawn, in the early evening, and settled down to watch a film on TV. The film, The Abyss, we hadn't seen before, so stayed up to watch it, then went to bed. Monday began with the usual rush, and my two children, by a previous marriage, had to be taken to school, and my son to the play school that was on the estate. I turned the corner and saw another wife standing watching a tight group of police cars down the end of the road. She wouldn't tell me what had happened, but suddenly I just knew. It was Fiona, and something very bad had happened to her. Fiona had been murdered the night before, around 9 to 9.30pm if I recall. I couldn't believe it, but I had no doubt that the crime would be solved. I learned Fiona's two little boys, just under school age, had come downstairs and found their mother dead and gone to get a neighbour. That day passed, I think none of us really felt anything but the weight of that murder. The sudden feeling of being unsafe, knowing that the estate was off the beaten track and so it was unlikely to have been an outsider. When the men were away frequently, it made us all lose our sense of security. But above all, we felt the awful circumstances of her death. That night I experienced the first strange occurrence. I fell asleep as usual, but I think I woke up, or at least I became aware of being in bed. I got up and went downstairs and out the front door. I saw Fiona, and she was furiously battering on doors. I saw her fists beating doors and windows, shouting and screaming but making no sound. She saw me and ran towards me, grabbing my shoulders and shouting in my face. She was pointing furiously towards where she had lived. I think she was saying, the woods. Behind her house was a copse of trees that bordered the estate from the farmland beyond. She was crying. Her furious face was wet, and she was staring into my eyes, trying so hard to make me understand. But beyond thinking that she was gesturing towards her house and saying, the woods, I couldn't grasp what she was trying to tell me. I began to cry and I touched her face and said, I'm so sorry, Fiona. Suddenly I was back in bed, awake and in tears. I went downstairs and looked out, but all was quiet and empty. 
I was so sure that it had happened. Someone had suggested to me that I experienced lucid dreaming. I'm not sure, but I actually had cold feet as if I'd not been in a warm bed, but outside barefoot. I dreamt of her again a few nights later. She was not furious now and was calmer, just so very, very sad. She was sitting on my step. They've missed something in the woods, she said, and this is all I could work out as once again. She spoke, but made no sound. The police came round every day, asking questions about selling Avon that she had taken over from me. They wanted to know what houses she went to, and if anyone on that route was odd in some way, if I'd ever felt uncomfortable or noticed anything. Actually, there was one person I knew. I tried so hard to help them. I listened to what the other wives said, went to mutual friends to see what the feeling was with them. I wanted to find Fiona's killer, or rather, had the killer found. A few weeks after this, my husband went away to Cyprus for six months, and soon after, my children and myself went there for eight weeks. I needed the break, plus living there was not so good anymore. The murder shadowed everything. I was more secure than others, as we had a shotgun that I knew how to use, and having army experience, I don't think I would have hesitated to use it. Anyway, the trip to Cyprus was very needed for us all. I returned when it was almost September. I found the police still questioning people, including me, although I told them everything I could possibly think of. There was one policeman very interested in the guy that I felt was a bit odd, and he'd been out that evening. But I also recalled how angry Fiona was that night when I had seen her beating at doors and windows, clutching painfully at my shoulders and shouting in my face so furiously. I couldn't help but think her killing had begun in terrible anger on both sides. But the police told me there had been two cups washed on the draining board, as if someone had been there and maybe come back, or that she had washed the cups after the contents were drunk, had been attacked just then when she had returned to the sitting room. I couldn't tell them I had had a weird dream where she was in such a fury. I remember thinking, if only I could be sure the dream was real. A few days later, maybe a few weeks, I again woke up inside my sleep. I got up and I just knew that she was there. I didn't turn on the light, but I went out of my room and down the stairs. There was two flights of steps and a landing halfway. On this landing was a small window, and through the curtains on this window was some light from outside. By this I saw a dark shape standing on the stairs. I went to her because I had no doubt at all who the dark shadow was. I stood before her and I said, I did my very best, Fiona. I'm so, so sorry. She silently put her hand in mine, and I felt what I thought was dry twigs in my hand, like ash, I thought. In the morning, I took the children to school and went to the shop on the estate. While there, another wife said to me, Have you heard? Fiona was cremated yesterday. I thought, like ash. Fiona Saunders' murder was never solved. I tried to call the police every few years to ask for an update after I heard her mother had died a few years later, but there was nothing that I could do that changed anything, nothing that I could recall to awaken some interest in her. On the website for Thames Valley Police is her murder listed unsolved, and the date, January the 1st, in error. I do hope this proves interesting. Every word is true. Thanks very much, Karen. It is interesting. I assume you've never had any more kind of dreams since then. Um, I'd be interested to know... Have you ever had any other dreams that have been, that you could perhaps say were kind of psychical, I guess? Um, but anyway, yeah, interesting story. Thanks very much for sending it in. It's fantastic. So next up, we got a story from Amanda from the deep snows of Colorado. Thanks very much, Amanda. 
Amanda says that um, she was hoping to send in a flash fiction that she'd written that was shortlisted for a prize. But disorganization, disorganization has made it lost to me. So instead, I wrote up a memory that might suit your scary Christmas theme. So thank you very much for writing the memory up. It's fantastic. And definitely go dig up your story and send it in because I'd like to read that as well. And Amanda's story starts some 20 years ago. 20 some years ago, I was a history major in college with a summer job at the city's museums. That particular summer, I filled in for the regular site interpreter at the Meeker House. Site interpreter is to tour guide what custodian is to janitor. The Meeker House is one of the oldest homes in Greeley, Colorado, built of abode on the high plains of Colorado. It was the residence of the city's founder, Nathan Meeker. Mr. Meeker was a war correspondent for the New York Tribune during the US Civil War. His mentor and patron was Horace Greeley, who would one day lose the election for the US presidency. Mr. Meeker was an idealist who, with Mr. Greeley's funding, launched the Union Colony in what is now Greeley, Colorado. The Union Colony was a post-war utopian society, not unlike the biodome of the following century. Yet at the dawn of eugenics, coupled with post-war fatigue, the original 700 members of the Union Colony were limited to wealthy, white, married, Christian men. Mormons and Catholics need not apply. Mr. Meeker, like all idealists, would not see an end to violence through his vision. Rather, when his patron, Mr. Greeley, died, Mr. Greeley's surviving daughters were keen to settle Mr. Meeker's debts to their father's estate. This led a newspaperman to take a job as the US agent at the White River Indian Reservation. His narrow perspective of what was a righteous life led to his own death following year when he enraged the Ute tribe by ploughing under their culturally important racetrack to make way for fields for planting. During the Meeker massacre, when Meeker and all of his male employees were killed, Meeker's wife Arvilla and daughter Josephine were taken captive by the Ute tribe. The wife and children of another Indian agency employee were also taken hostage. Arvilla sustained but survived a gunshot wound. All three women, it's claimed, were sexually assaulted by their captors. After the massacre, the women returned to their home, though Josephine was soon off to Washington, D.C. During my time working there, it was much as it was during Mrs. Meeker's convalescence. Even before the Meeker massacre, the property was marred by tragedy. Before moving in, the Meeker's oldest son had died of tuberculosis at the Union Colony. Their grandson drowned in a well, and their daughter Mary died in childbirth on the second floor of the home. Even Josephine, after surviving captivity with the Ute tribe and refusing the proposals of her captor, died of pneumonia in Denver after returning to Colorado. Later, the eldest daughter, Roseanne, died in the mental asylum after being homeless on the streets of the city her father founded. One day, not long before closing the Meeker House Museum, a storm started brewing. This is not unusual in the late spring, early summer on the high plains of Colorado. The sky grew dark and the house followed suit. The electricity flickered as it was prone to do in a house that was built before the onset of modern conveniences. I heard the wind pick up and I knew that the thunder was not far behind. As it was nearly time for me to leave, I counted up the take for the day using a calculator to add up the checks before placing a summary receipt into the cash bag. Intently adding sums and sitting at the dining table, I was startled by a loud crash of thunder but soothed by the fact that it was not unordinary. Then, I heard a loud slam upstairs. I knew I was alone in the house, as it had been more than an hour since the last tour when I escorted our visitors from the upstairs. 
The windows hadn't been opened in years and were most likely painted shut. The trees stood far enough from the historic home to pose no threat, and the noise was the unmistakable sound of a slamming door. I hurried through, placing the money where it was to be picked up by the manager the following morning, locking it up, double-checking the front door lock, and then setting the alarm as I rushed out the back and locked the door as well. I was well on my way home through the thunderstorm, my windshield wipers swiping at the heavy rain, when I distinctly remembered that all of the doors in the upstairs rooms were removed from their hinges to allow better views from the velvet ropes that held the tourists back from the sanctuary of Demeka's private quarters. A few years ago, my husband's grandfather passed away. He has a memorial, along with his son and parents and grandparents in Lingrove Cemetery. My children's ancestors, who were early colonists to the high plains of Colorado, are buried near the Mika clan, and I hope they all rest peacefully this winter. Thanks very much for your story, Amanda. And I'm glad I'm not the only one that would have just booked it straight out of there. Because whenever you watch horror films, for example, the sound of the door would have slammed and and they would have, you know, lit a candle or something and walked up there. But you know in reality that you just book it out of there as fast as you can. (laughs) But again, it was another one of those cracking stories where there's a sudden realisation and a sudden moment rather than like a over-the-top creepy ghost. So yeah, it seems like we're on a bit of a theme tonight. Thanks very much for your story. Next up, this is from, and I'm down, bound to get this name wrong, I think M. Shawfish, but it's all one word. So I'm not sure if that's a typo or if you've just got a name that I can't pronounce, but I think it's probably M. Shawfish. But anyway, do shout at me if I've got that wrong. She's a skeptic. Um, always been a skeptic. I've never seen a ghost. I don't necessarily doubt folks who say they've encountered them. It's just outside my scope of experience. So I'd understand the hesitation of others to believe the following story I'm going to tell. It's a strange one, but if hearing someone has experienced something similar, that would be kind of cool. So yeah, if you've experienced anything similar, get in touch, stick it in the comments, and uh, we can see. Like most kids, I always wished I could fly. It was Superman's coolest and most enviable superpower as far as I was concerned, and it was one that I never failed to adopt when playing imaginary games on the playground. Furthermore, I've always savoured my epic, reoccurring dreams of flight even though on some level I've always suspected that such dreams and the swimming-like sensations of flight in those dreams might simply be residual genetic memory embedded from my forebears of millions of years ago as they made the evolutionary leap from bacteria to tadpoles. But my relationship to flight changed on September the 23rd, 1993. I was 16 years old, laying asleep on my back and facing the ceiling when I awoke with a strange feeling. I realised that my head was touching the pillow the rest of my body wasn't. I was somehow elevated from my neck to the length of my feet, risen about three to four inches off my bed. My head wasn't elevated, I suspect because the pillow was of the appropriate height to match the new height to which my body had inexplicably lifted off the mattress. The sensation, for the lack of a better word, floating, didn't really feel like anything other than the complete lack of any bedsheets below touching my skin or bending under my weight. And so soon had I realised what was happening, I slowly lowered the short distance back to the mattress and gently sunk in. It was easy, pleasant and very non-dramatic. Well, that was bizarre, I thought. And then, like any sane person, assumed that had been another classic flight dream, so I relinquished my bewilderment and made for sleep again. That didn't last long, however. 
Some minutes later, I was pulled from my slumbers once more of what I can only describe as a lifting sensation. Like when you're on a flight and you know the plane that just rose several feet or fell several feet and you get that little lurch in your stomach. This time, when I opened my eyes, I was raised at least a full six inches off the mattress and even more awake than before to take all of this insanity in. My head was now lifted too since I was higher than the pillow and after a moment of calibration that this thing was actually happening to me, again, I then sank slowly back into the mattress as before, feeling the skin on the back of my arms reconnect with the cool threads of the bedsheets below, rejoining the rest of the slaves to gravity. I wasn't the least bit drowsy. In fact, I was so awake at this point that I reached for my journal on the bedside table to write about it in giddy sentences like, that was not a dream, that was real, I have achieved flight, or some such nonsense. However legitimate the experience might have been, it's rather silly now to look back on my reaction. No, I was not a superhero. No, I wasn't some enlightened yogi who had surpassed physical laws. I was a tired kid who had probably consumed too much Twin Peaks and Hamburger Helper and somehow woke up above his bed. What in God's name was that? And why me? When I finally did turn out the light and go back to sleep, I went into vivid dreams wherein the same lifting sensation happened again this time lifting me into a full standing position, but I have no proof that the third sensation was anything other than a dream. The next day, I met up with my two best friends who lived in my neighbourhood. We convened outside our houses to discuss the previous night's events with the utmost seriousness. Theories flew. One included astral projection, which I dismissed. I'd experienced sleep paralysis before, and in that rather uncomfortable state, I believed myself able to push out of my body and move around the room, etc., but in contrast, that differed greatly since paralysis was a rather uncomfortable sensation with an underlying feeling of crippling horror straight out of the haunting of Hill House. I also felt it entirely possible to write that off as a dream as a result of too much caffeine. This, I told them, was different. This was a physical lift. Throughout, I was incredibly at peace. One friend offered an alien abduction theory and for a while I entertained a vague possibility that little green men had taken an interest in me. But the levitation hasn't happened again in almost 30 years. So if it's the greys or the greens or whatever they are that were indeed behind this, I must have been their one night stand. One last footnote to this story. Exactly two years later, on September 23rd, 1995, another unique experience which is no less bizarre and unbelievable happened to my girlfriend. She awoke locked within her own very first sleep paralysis to the feeling of being watched. Opening her eyes, she beheld the spectre of a serpentine dragon floating above her bed. As one might imagine, she didn't exactly want to look at this thing just hovering there and so she turned away toward the doorway of her bedroom. There she saw a spotted brown and white horse just standing there. It walked over to where she lay unable to move and whispered in her ear. Then she felt a breath pass over her whole body and an angelic voice say, I love you, and she fell back to sleep. The next day, we spoke over the phone from my dormitory in New York City, and I couldn't believe it was exactly the same day, December the 23rd. She had already asked her uncle about the experience it was unlike any dream or waking experience that she'd ever had. It was perhaps this uncle who suggested a correlation between her dream and our respective birth years on the Chinese zodiac. And it turned out he was right, as we learned that my girlfriend was born in the year of the horse, and I was born in the year of the dragon. Chinese zodiac, levitation, visions, astral projection, I suspect it all sounds absolutely bonkers, and I fully relate to any sceptics, but to this day, I regard the date of September the 23rd as suspicious, 
and still wonder if just for a moment my childhood dream of flight came true. So thank you very much for your story. Did you ever wonder if it was, because in, in a sense, this is, that's the sort of classic scene of someone hovering above the bed from something like Poltergeist. Did you ever wonder if it was, I suppose you said, because you said you felt quite comfortable and relaxed, but did you ever wonder if it was like any other kind of paranormal force that was lifting you up? Because that would play on my mind, I think. <laughs> Moving on, we got a story from Tim. And Tim says, I have a ghost story to submit for your end of year podcast. Not scary at all, not even that weird, but it's always stayed with me. If it's always stayed with you, Tim, that's enough. Here we go. My parents were very different people. My father was a seeker, always reading up on various phenomena. His main thrust at the time was UFO law, having even conducted research on the subject for the Rand Corporation in the 1960s. But he was also very interested in alternative spirituality as well. My mother, on the other hand, was a pretty down-to-earth Catholic, with no interest whatsoever in paranormal matters. She wasn't a hard-nosed sceptic, she just wasn't interested. I don't think she put any more value on it than on fairy tales. In the early 1970s, we were living in a smallish farmhouse, with both parents kept very busy by the constant work involved in farm life. I'm not sure how old the house was, but I'd say it was built in the first third of the 20th century. On one occasion, in the small hours of the morning, Mum was lying awake in bed and saw what she described as a group of people fade into view in the far corner of the room. She said they looked like a family and seemed to be gathering for a photo. She described their clothes and style as being quite old, but I never pressed her for more details on their number and era. And then they kind of stood there for a while and then they were gone. She told my father about it the next day and he was very excited, as I would have been. All my life I wished one of those random UFO sightings or ghost appearances would happen before my eyes, but no such luck, so I can very much imagine Dad's frame of mind. She had urged Mum to wake him if she ever saw them again, so that he could share the experience. So the next time she saw it, she woke him gently. His response with his eyes squeezed shut was along the lines of, God damn it, isn't it enough that I work all day? Can't I sleep through the night? Grumble, grumble. So Mum shrugged it and let it go and my dad missed his chance to have a benign supernatural encounter from the comfort of his own goddamn bed. I think she may have seen them another time or two, but no more after that. And that was the sum total of her supernatural experience. Poor dad, I feel his pain. So that's my story. Not the kind of thing that's going to keep anyone up at night, but it's always amused me. I wouldn't be offended if you don't read this on the show, of course, but I hope you enjoyed it. I definitely get a ton of pleasure from your work. The podcast, not the ladies' hairstyling. Well, I'm sure that is great. I'm a bald dude in the Chicago area, so that's a little less relevant for me. <laughs> Thanks for all you do, and I hope you have a very happy Christmas. Maybe next year I'll send the tale of my strange little Ouija board experience. Thanks very much, Tim. And Merry Christmas to you too. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the ladies' hairstylings have a lot less interest to most people. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really liked your story. It reminded me of the others, um, you know, the film with Nicole Kidman in it, actually, with the family that's kind of living in a house and they're just kind of getting on. Um, it reminded me of that. And I think your mum did quite well not to batter your dad in his sleep, to be honest, because I think I would have. So yeah, thanks very much for your story, Tim. Next up, we got Nathan and he says, I love your podcast. I think the Christmas special is my favourite episode every year. Love hearing everyone's stories. So here's mine. Thanks very much, Nathan. And I think I'm 
prone to agree. When I was in high school every year in the fall, my church youth group went on a weekend camping trip to French Creek State Park. It's in Barks County, Pennsylvania. In my sophomore year, one night at dinner, a group of us were joking around with some of the leaders and somehow the topic of teabagging came up. My older brother, two of my friends and I were all bunking together in the same cabin. We decided it would be funny to prank the leaders, so we each pocketed a teabag from the kitchen after dinner. That night, after everyone went to their cabins, we snuck down to the leaders' cabin and attempted to sneak in and drop a teabag in their face. The cabins are all old and in rough shape, so the door made a pretty loud sound when opened and woke everyone in the cabin up. We all just threw our teabags at someone in the room and ran back to our cabin. At this point, it was after midnight, but we got back to our cabin and expected some type of retaliation. The cabin we were in was 20 feet square. Each corner had a bed frame with a piece of cardboard to protect your sleeping bag from the springs. The walls had windows that started at about your waist and spanned most of the wall. There was no glass, only screen mesh. The door also was a wood frame covered in mesh. The doors had a spring that required a tug to open and they wouldn't shut all the way unless you let them slam or pushed it shut. If you were standing in the cabin facing the door, the sleeping arrangements had me in the right corner right next to the door. My friend was in the bed to the left of the door. My other friend was back left corner and my older brother was back right. My friend sleeping in the bed by the door fell asleep right after we got back. The rest of us were sitting in bed talking and looking out for anyone coming. Now, the three of us had all grown up in families that were big time hunters. We had all spent plenty of time in the woods at night or in the early morning hours. The moon was full and there were no lights around but our eyes were adjusted and could see fairly well. Not long after returning to the cabin, we all heard something moving outside. Assuming it was the leaders sneaking up, we began looking out for them. The large windows gave us pretty much a 360 view. The front of the cabin was facing a large path that ran through the site. Back was in the woods. We continued to hear something circling our cabin and began seeing shadows darting in the woods. The shadows were too small for a person, so our first thought was the animal. Whatever it was kept circling the cabin, but never went out to the path where we would have got a better look. Also, what had originally been one, now appeared to be multiple shadows circling the cabin. They also seemed to be jumping about, stopping and then starting some distance away without any sign of movement between the two areas. By this point, this obviously wasn't a retaliation run, and we were all also trying to convince ourselves it was animals, but that was quickly failing. To enter the cabin, there was a gravel patch with two cement steps. I heard a step in the gravel and a scuff of a shoe on the step. I turned in my bed, being the closest one awake to the door and ready to jump at whoever came in. The door opened four or five inches and hung there for a few seconds before letting go, but did not have enough force to completely close. I immediately sat up and heard the same scuff on the step and step in the gravel. There should have been someone right outside my window no one was there. Out front of the cabin was just the open area with nowhere to hide in the second it took to sit up. As I was sitting there looking out the window, my friend noticed the door and said it's open. I told him that it had opened by itself and that no one was there. That had him freaked out and he pulled his bed away from the window. At this point, the shadows had stopped and whatever was circling the cabin disappeared. We asked the leaders about it the next morning and they said they never left their cabins and that they had gone back to sleep as soon as we left. 
My brother then told us how the year before, he had gone back to his cabin to change the first night after dinner. We always did a big capture the flag game in the dark on the first night. While alone in his cabin, he saw a shadow rise up from the floor. He said it ended up about the height of a person, and so dark it blocked out anything behind it. He froze and felt like he couldn't move as it slowly drifted towards him. It was a few feet away when he heard someone coming and it disappeared right before one of his bunkmates opened the door. He didn't know what to make of it, and so he had never told anyone. So yeah, that's my story. All three of us are very experienced outdoorsmen and are still convinced that it was no animal circling our cabin. Thanks very much, Nathan. What interests me is, and, and I guess it's part of what makes the stories so intriguing as they are, but now I'm really curious to know, you know, what your thoughts are on it. If you don't, don't, if you don't think it was animals, what, what do you think it was? You know, is it one of those things that you just think, I'm not really sure I don't have an explanation, or do you have like theories of your own or whatever? I'd, be love, I'd love to know and be interested to find out. But um, thank you very much for your story. I would have honestly been like phoning my parents and telling them to come pick me up as soon as I heard that door slam, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, not cut out for this kind of stuff. Next story we've got is from Ali in Worcestershire. And Ali says that she has a little story that she wanted to send for the Christmas campfire episode. I've remembered this since my grandmother told it to me many years ago. It's just a short one. And I understand if you don't use it, but if you need one to fill a couple of minutes, you might find it interesting. Absolutely not to fill a couple of minutes, Ali. Um, everyone is welcome to send stories in for this and they all get read out. So absolutely, it's worth including. So thank you very much for sending it in and taking the time to write it out. I would like to share with you a story that was told to me as a young girl by my late grandmother, Gwen. I should start by saying my grandmother, although short in stature, was no shrinking violet and was not easily frightened as was demonstrated by an amusing incident in her later years when she grabbed an antique sword from beside the front door and with it proceeded to poke a persistent con man who, misguidedly, thought he could persuade her to allow him indoors. Despite her plucky nature, the following story had been forever etched in her memory, an unsettling experience, seemingly without a worldly explanation. Gwen was born in 1911 near the Welsh border in Herefordshire, and during her teenage years, she worked as a nurse at a newly converted hospital treating patients with scarlet fever and diphtheria, a highly contagious and potentially fatal infection, thankfully now rare in the UK. The hospital had previously been a workhouse, an off-Dickens reference institution, providing the most destitute men, women and children with basic accommodation and employment in a generally harsh environment. Built in the early 1800s, this workhouse had recently been converted to a hospital as would become common practice with the abolition of workhouses around 1930. Men's and women's wards were separate, and on Gwen's first night shift, she was undertaking her rounds alone on the male ward when she saw, walking slowly towards her in the dim light, an elderly lady. Gwen bid the elderly woman good night and continued on as the figure walked silently and slowly past, her head bowed, clutching a black shawl around her shoulders without acknowledging Gwen. Just as the lady had passed, Gwen suddenly realised that this was the men's ward and that the lady must have got lost. She turned around to assist the lady, only to find the ward, apart from the sleeping male patients and herself, completely empty. Gwen looked around. There was nowhere that the lady could have gone, 
and she certainly couldn't have walked out of the long Victorian ward that quickly. Thinking about it, Gwen didn't recognise her as a patient from the women's ward either, and her black shawl and clothing were not usual patient attire. Rather shaken by the strange experience, Gwen finished her shift and retired for an uneasy sleep in the staff quarters. On waking the next morning, still perplexed by the events of the night before, she entered the staff kitchen for breakfast. The other nurses inquired as to whether Gwen had got a good night's sleep, but upon seeing her unsettled demeanour, they asked her what was wrong and whether she was feeling unwell. When Gwen, at first hesitantly, recalled the previous night's experience and, trying to seek a rational explanation, asked if there might be a member of the staff matching the elderly lady's description or a patient that she maybe hadn't yet met, the nurses looked knowingly at one another before explaining in hushed tones that they too had seen the figure of the elderly lady in black, only to also find that she had mysteriously vanished into the haze of the kerosene lamplight moments later. Gwen never saw the lady in black again, but she never forgot the night when she may have encountered a ghostly echo from the time the hospital was a workhouse. Thanks very much, Ali. It's a great story and Gwen sounds amazing. Super classic woman in black. I love it. Next up, we got a story from Gary, who was a train driver on the Northern Line on the London Underground. And the London Underground is full of crazy stories, I think. There's a, I mean, there's whole books and documentaries about that. So I'm very excited to bring you Gary's story. And he says, this happened to me in 1995. I used to be a train driver on the Northern Line. There is a section of track, deep underground, that is a blocked off tunnel. This area is used to turn the trains around. I pulled into the tunnel section and there was the man sitting on a buffer stops. I waved and he waved back. I stopped the train and shut it down and opened up the nose end door. I assumed he was a guard who had gotten out of a previous train to take a pee and his driver had left without him. As I looked out the back of the train through the now open door, There was no one there. There were no doors at that point to get into the tunnel and nowhere to hide, and only nine inches between the side of the train and the wall. I looked under the train in case he was a fitter who had been sent to fix the train, but I could not find him anywhere. I called my controller and reported the incident and said that I was not happy to move the train as I didn't know where he was, but I was overruled and told to move. When I arrived back at East Finchley, I was taken off and my manager took me into a room and showed me a picture of a driver and it was the man that I had seen. My manager then told me that this was a driver who had died in that tunnel of a heart attack five years previous and he sometimes appeared to drivers who were having a bad time. Three weeks earlier, I had suffered my first fatality. It gives me comfort to think that there is something after we move on. Feel free to read this or just pass it on to anyone. Thanks very much, Gary. That's a great story. And I say, like, the London Underground is just full, chock full, isn't it, of stories like this. It's such a claustrophobic environment when you mention that it's a small thing, but when you mention that there's only nine inches between the side of the train and the wall and stuff, suddenly, because as I was reading it, I I got this vision of a a quite a wide tunnel. But then you realise that the underground's not like that, is it? It's, It's really crammed. Like, the tunnels are really cramped. So unless you're driven into a cavern, of course it was quite a claustrophobic environment. When you imagine it like that, suddenly it becomes quite a quite claustrophobic story. So thank you very much for sending that in. So now we're on to our last story, and this one was sent in by Sabrina on behalf of her husband, Terry. The area where I grew up in was much like any other part of rural Ireland. 
It had an abundance of local folk tales, centuries-old superstitions, and a wealth of ghost stories. Some treated these old ways with a sense of earnestness and would have not been ashamed to declare their belief in such things. Others treated them with derision. My parents fell into the latter category, which makes the following story all the more chilling to me. I can't remember precisely when it happened, except that it was on a Wednesday night in the late 1980s. My grandmother always visited us on a Wednesday night. She would walk the one-mile journey from her house to where we lived, spend several hours with us, and then, when it was dark, would be driven back to her home by my parents or by one of my older siblings. On the evening in question, it was my mother's turn to make sure my grandmother got back safely. So both of them got into the car and they drove off towards her house. The weekly family routine was drawing to its usual conclusion, except that this time there was a twist. When she returned from her two-mile round trip, my mother rushed through the front door and threw her arms around my father. She was startled and barely able to speak. Eventually, once she had settled, she explained what had happened. It turned out that the first half of the journey had gone without a hitch. My grandmother made it home, they waved goodbye, and my mother headed back along the usual route. However, on passing an old 19th century farmhouse, things took a most unusual turn. It was at this point that she looked into the rearview mirror to see a man sitting in the back seat of the car. Shocked at the sight of the mystery imposter, she began to pray. According to my mother, the man was middle-aged, wore a flat cap and had an ashen grey face. He did not speak, nor make eye contact, nor did he appear to be in any hurry to leave. Many of us have experienced one of those moments where we think we've seen something in the corner of our eye, only to realise on a second glance that there was nothing there. Yet my mother claimed that the figure in her car remained there for around 20 to 30 seconds. During this period, she said that she moved her eyes from the rearview mirror to the road ahead and back again, but the still and silent man wearing the cap remained in the same place. And then, once she turned left onto the road where our house was situated, she felt a light breeze run through the car and the figure was gone. A few years later, my mother told me that she had let my grandmother know what had happened to her as she drove home that night. My grandmother's reaction was not one of surprise. Far from it. Indeed, she said she knew the name of the chap with the ashen grey face. He was, she claimed, a member of the family that lived at the farmhouse my mother had passed on her way home, the point at which the figure had appeared. Apparently, he drowned in an accident at sea many years before and his spirit is said to haunt a room in the farmhouse. And that's where the story ends. My mother and grandmother have long since passed away, although the family of the man said to have been the figure in the back seat of the car that night still live at the same farmhouse. Very little was changed about the building, or indeed anything else along the road that my mother had took home that evening. I like to think of myself as a rational and logical individual who has little tolerance for superstitious nonsense, but then so was my mother. I still get a chill passing that farmhouse. I always will. Thank you very much for your story, Sabrina and Terry. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you everyone for listening throughout all of 2019. Thank you so much for all your support you've given me, whether that have been financial through Patreon or just by downloading and listening to the show, getting in contact, sending books, you know, just being a part of Dark Histories. Thank you very much for all that you've done. Next year, we're going to be starting season four in the first week of January, which is very exciting. I've already got episodes underway for that. So onwards and upwards. Thank you very much again for listening. 
that's the end of our Christmas Campfire Edition 2019. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a very happy and healthy New Year for you and your loved ones. I also want to give a quick shout out to my great aunt Pat, who apparently listens to the podcast. Thanks very much for listening, Pat. She's proper East London. Great lady. Thanks very much for listening. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, Pat. Cheers. Sleep tight.